But we are in the book of First John together today, so if you want to turn there with me, if you're looking for First John all the way to the back of your Bible, um, it's just a few books away from the book of Revelation. So go as far back as you can go and then uh, turn to your left just a little bit. First John, Second John, and Third John are pretty small books. Um, but I would imagine we're not going to spend a small amount of time on these small books. We'll be here for a little while. So we need to get comfortable with John. Oh, we need more, huh? Just as a show, so I know how many to order. How many in the room still need one that I can order them? Okay. All right, we'll get some more. I'll have them next week, okay? Okay, everybody there in First John? Excellent. Let's look at the first four verses together this morning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. All right, we have been looking at Paul's letters so much that we need to shift a writing style in our mind because Paul is Paul and John is John and they both have their own personalities and their own writing styles. And so we need to become familiar with how John is, is giving us his message because it's a little bit different than Paul. Okay, but let's start to look at, I, I want to answer just a couple of things. As we should, as we begin to study any book of the Bible, there are at least four things that we need to look at together. And so it's going to be this. Who is the author? When was it written? What kind of genre is it? What is this thing? What was its purpose? And who is he writing to? So we're going to look at the author, the date, the genre, and the audience. Now, your modern Bible uh, is going to have, most likely, a little introduction. And it's going to tell you some of these things. Why might it tell you those things? Well, because it's important. Because in order to properly understand something, we must find context. We must have the right context to understand something properly. If we read something out of context, we're not going to understand it. So what was the context of this book? Who is the author? Well, the author is John the Apostle. But if you've read through 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you know what you're going to find? That it never says that this was written by John. It never says that he's an apostle. He calls himself an elder, actually. So what would lead us to believe that this is John the Apostle? As we go through our text today, I'm going to point out a few things to you. But for now... Historically, and from very early on, uh, it has been understood and really never questioned that 1 John was written by John the Apostle. Now, John is also the author of the Gospel of John, which we went through together some time ago, and we spent a lot of time there, didn't we? We were in the Gospel of John for a very long time. 
So John wrote that as well. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. All the same John. Now he is also the son of Zebedee. His brother was James. They were called the sons of thunder, if you remember that. So he is also the disciple whom Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. He is also part of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. There were only 12, and yet even within that 12, there was a tight inner circle of only three, and it was Peter, James, and John. When John says that he has seen, heard, and touched, he really has. He was there with Jesus as he walked on this earth, not in an impersonal way, but right there with him, knowing him personally. Now, he was also a fisherman from Galilee. He was also, according to Acts 4.13, a common, uneducated man. A common, uneducated man. His brother, James, was killed by the government for being a believer. You can find that story in Acts chapter 12. So James was already dead when John is writing this. And so can you imagine losing your brother for a faith that you're now proclaiming? Hard, right? But we're going to find John's heart here right on display for us, and he's not holding anything back. It should be encouraging to us. By the way, just remember about John himself is that historically, John is the only apostle not to have been martyred. He is the only apostle that we know of that was not killed for his faith. All the rest were. John lived a long life. So that leads us to the next thing here, which is the date of writing. We can date this within about a decade, between 85 and 95. Now think about Jesus' life and ministry being around the years 30 to 33, somewhere around there. So this is about 50 years after that writing, or that, that took place, if not more. 50 years is a long time, right? I'm not 50 years old. You know that. Some of you are more than 50 years old, and you would still agree 50 years is a long time. He is writing this 50 years or so after these events occurred. And he is still even more so devoted to his faith that he knows to be true. He knows to be true. He believes it thoroughly with everything that he is. Now, John is writing this most likely after he had written his gospel. So we look at the Gospel of John. He is most likely, we can't know for sure, but all evidence points to the fact that he was writing this after John was already, the Gospel of John was completed and being circulated. Because actually, what we're going to find in here is possibly some response to his Gospel that he's correcting. So they were saying certain things and believing certain things, but he wanted to make sure, listen, don't misunderstand what I said in my Gospel. I want you to understand properly what it is because you're taking it to the extreme and doesn't every religion or every sect or every cult everywhere have extremists and john is making sure that extremists don't arise and that the churches that he's overseeing don't become extremists and miss the point because extremists do miss the point they take small things and make them big things so What's happening here? 
Well, I want to show you a map. You know that I like maps. I like maps, why? Because they, they put us there. Because you know that John was a real person who lived on this real planet somewhere geographically in history. This is not a fairy tale. This is real. So where was he in this world? Well, he was in a place that is very foreign to us. So here's a map, and uh, you might not have your bearings here, but this is the area of Asia Minor. And uh, go to the next one, because we have a, a place that we should know. Which in the north, there is Philippi. We just read through the book of Philippians. So that's where Philippi was located, in a little different region. But now we're all the way over here, and you'll notice that there are eight dots. One of them looks like it's out in the middle of the water, but it's an island. Okay, so go to that next one. So what is this? These, those are the seven churches of Revelation. Okay, you should be familiar with that. Uh, that is the island of Patmos. What is the island of Patmos? Well, that's where John was exiled. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, it's believed that John moved out of Jerusalem and he moved to this region about the year 66, 67, 68, somewhere around there, during the Jewish rebellion right before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70. So there was a lot of stuff going on, a lot of persecution of Christians. John got out of there and he moved to Ephesus, which was on that previous slide. He moved to Ephesus and that's where John lived and ministered until he died, somewhere around the year 95, 96, 97, somewhere around there, okay? A good old man ministering until the time of his death, okay? So what is this thing that John has written? So we're talking about the genre, and it's going to be a general epistle. We don't really use the word epistle too much, but it's a letter. Uh, and it's also either called a universal, a circular, or a Catholic just meaning universal, letter. Meaning it wasn't written to one church, like the letter to the Philippians. It wasn't written to one church. It was written to a mass of churches in a particular area. What churches was he writing to? The churches in Asia Minor. The churches where he lived and ministered. And so, the churches um, would have been some of the same churches from those seven churches of Revelation. Okay? Ephesus was kind of the epicenter, the, the, we would call it a capital city uh, of, of this region. So certainly Ephesus would have been in, involved. We have another letter from Paul to the Ephesian church, don't we? That same group. Okay, so we need to talk about, just for a second, so you can just know this information. Uh, why is the letter of 1 John located in your Bible where it is, all the way tucked towards the back of the Bible? Are we ashamed of it? We put it towards the back. Why is it back there? Why are the Gospels up front? Why are all the letters of Paul in front of the letters of John? Are they more important? Well, generally speaking, your Bible is arranged just for very practical reasons. If you're going to arrange something, you arrange it. Um, the arrangement of your Bible is not inspired by God himself, uh, just like your chapter and verse divisions. Okay, But we have added those just for help just for help. We've put them in a particular order. So it's arranged primarily by genre first, and then by author, and then by length. So you're going to have gospels, you're going to have history, which is Acts, and then you're going to have the letters of Paul, longest to shortest. And then you're going to have Peter's letters, longest to shortest. And then you're going to have John, longest to shortest. So you get the idea, right? Uh, Hebrew is kind of stuck in the middle because people debate about who wrote it. 
So that, that's why it's there. It's just letters of John, longest to shortest. So 1 John is just the longest. It doesn't mean that he wrote it first. So when we get to 2 John and 3 John, let's just keep that in mind. Okay? What can we know about the audience? Because today, who is the audience? We are. Is it helpful for us to know who the original audience was? Absolutely. I hope you answer yes to that. From the book of 1 John itself, we can glean at least four things about the original audience. I want to look at those with you. After we do this, we're going to get into our text, okay? All right. Who were they? Number one. First thing we can know for sure, they were believers. How do we know that? 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Pretty straightforward. Don't have to guess about it. He definitely wrote this to believers. Is that, first of all, helpful to know? Yes. Second, he wrote this to a group of people, a group of churches who were being deceived. How do I know that? 1 John 2.26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Good, he told us, plain language, right? Don't have to guess about it. Number three, these churches needed instruction. Chapter two, verse one. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Do you hear the instruction there? There's more instruction. That was just an example of instruction. And then finally, number four, they needed assurance. I go back to 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you might get eternal life, but that you may know that you already have it. Are you ever in need of assurance? Are you ever in need of being, just being reminded that you have hope in Jesus Christ? You ever tempted to be deceived? You ever need instruction? Are you a believer? This letter's for us. Let's look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, I'm going to put one passage on the screen for you this morning, and it's going to be right here up front because it's the beginning of the Gospel of John. I want you to see the similarities, okay? This is John 1 from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, this is 1 John 1, 1 through 4 that we're looking at. There are a lot of similarities. How do we know it was written by the same guy? Well, this is a pretty good indication. Look at what John 1, 1 through 4 says. In the beginning was, I highlighted the similarities, right? Yeah, there it is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. It has the same content, different wording. Do you see it? This was the prologue of John. This is the prologue of 1 John. This is a way John likes to write. He likes to kind of tell us what he's about to tell us, and then he's going to tell us what he's going to tell us. That's how you learn to write too, right? Tell him what you're going to tell him, and then tell him, and then tell him what you told him. 
right? That's right. That's how you write, isn't it? John was a common, uneducated man. But he had heard and seen and looked at and touched that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning, he was there with him. He touched him. He saw him. He looked at him with his own eyes. He heard his own voice. He heard the voice of the Lord. He touched him. From the Gospel of John, we know that he even reclined on him. Do you remember that? Can you imagine being so near the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Well, John was there, and he has something to tell us. I want to hear what he has to say. Do you? I want to know. What have you heard? What have you seen? What was it like to touch the Lord? I want to know. If the Lord was here, what would he say? Something I want to tell you before we really get into much, look for this in John's, in John's writing. He uses two things. Know this because it helps us to understand. He uses both repetition and something called amplification. Repetition and amplification. So, unlike Paul, who is very logical, was Paul an uneducated common man? No, not in any way whatsoever. He's the extreme opposite. Now, John, though, is common, uneducated, was a fisherman. That was not Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, taught by Gamaliel himself. He was very educated. Okay, so Paul is speaking in a very logical, straightforward way with great argumentation, linear argumentation. But John is, is different. He's having a conversation with us. And so he's going to prove his point, not so much by logical argumentation, but by imagery and repetition and what's called amplification. Amplification is simply using more words than what is necessary to prove your point. So he's kind of using colorful language to help us understand. So just look for that, okay? Do you already hear it? What we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, why did, what, what do you see with your ears? Why did you need to say eyes? What, what we looked upon, you already said that. We touched with our hands. Well, right, that only makes sense. Do you see how he's kind of repeating himself and he's giving us more information than what's necessary? But does it help you understand what he's saying? This is real. I really saw him. I really touched him. I really heard his voice. Concerning what? Concerning the word of life. Now, it's a little difficult because when you say the word of life, you could mean two things. When you say concerning the word of life, what do you mean? The word of life. If I were to say, what is the word of life? You might say, I don't know. But it's definitely both the person and work of Jesus. It's not just the work of Jesus. It's who he is. But it's not just who he is. It's what he has done. And so the message of life or concerning life, concerning eternal life, the life, which was from the beginning, is both who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. It is the gospel message and it is the one who brought about the gospel message. It is the message of hope, but it is also the one who brought about hope for us. It is both. And you're going to see that in John's writing. Why did he start this way? This is a question I have. 
you're writing to a group of churches, the first thing you have to say is what? I have seen, heard, and touched Jesus Christ who has given us this great gospel message, the gospel of life itself. Why did he write this way? We need to introduce this morning already what John is, the reason John was writing this letter was because they were trying to be deceived. Do you remember that? This group of people had a particular name and commentators and theologians insist on calling them the cessationists. So they are the cessationists. What is a cessa- uh, cessationist? Uh, this, this is one uh, uh, who is, I kept saying cessationist because that's the word I use, secessionist, excuse me. One who secedes, that is one who pulls away from a group, not cessationist. If you know what that word means, you're probably laughing right now. It's not, it's not what I meant. I use that word far more than secessionist, so it just came out. Uh, so they are secessionist. That means they were, they were part of a group and they withdrew from a group, right? You know, that part of the Civil War. There were those who seceded, right? So they, they drew away and formed their own group. And so here, it was a, a group of people who were part of the church who pulled away and formed their own group over here. We know a couple of things about them from John, we know, first of all, they had false beliefs about Jesus, but they also had false beliefs about sin, and this is what caused them to be drawn away. He addresses that here, and I want to read it for you in 1 John 4, 1 through 3. 1 John 4, 1 through 3, listen to what it says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. What is he saying that they were trying to prove or trying to pull them away or deceive them They were trying to say that Jesus Christ had not come in the flesh, but was a divine, spiritual, heavenly presence only. We might think, well, I mean, that's kind of weird. Why would they be trying to make them believe that? And why was that important to them? Well, as it is with our context, doesn't the world we live in force us to believe certain things, force us to want to believe certain things? And if you want to believe something enough, you're going to find a way to believe it. And a prevalent thought process at the time was called Gnosticism. And so they just took a little bit of the worldly thought and mixed it in with Christian thought and came up with this idea. But they were convinced that it was true. They didn't think it was a lie. They didn't think it was made up. They really thought it was true. But it disconnected them from the true body of believers believing something different, something false about Jesus. So John is saying, if someone doesn't believe that Jesus physically came, that he could be touched and seen and heard, then they are not from God. Are there people who believe that Jesus is only an idea but never came in the flesh? Are there people that believe that today? It's more the idea of Jesus than a real historical figure. Yes, that is very true. People definitely believe that today. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? No. I was tempted to ask you a third time because, I mean, you're not, you're not very enthusiastic about your answer. 
Uh, no, I mean, we, no, we don't believe that. Were you a little nervous about answering? Do you believe that? Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. All right. We do not believe that Jesus came in spirit only or was simply an idea, but we definitely believe that Jesus was a real, true, historical figure who was born a baby of a virgin, lived a perfect, sinless life, was rejected by men, was crucified, died, and rose from the dead on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Thank you. Would every church say amen? Are you thankful for the people in this room next to you who did? You know, this is the reason that John wrote this letter. It's because not everybody in that church said amen to that. They said, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of convinced that maybe they're right. Maybe Jesus wasn't. This is 50 years after Jesus was on the earth. Maybe, maybe he wasn't real. Maybe it's an idea. Maybe he was just a spiritual presence. I don't know. But John is saying, listen, I saw him. I touched him. I heard him myself. And I'm telling you and I'm proclaiming to you and I testify, he is real and he is life. Do you believe that today? Let's look at verse two. Now he says, that life that I proclaim to you was made manifest. And we have seen it, and we testify to it. We proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What does made manifest mean? It, it, it came unto reality. It, it, it came here with us. Jesus Christ really came here among us. Jesus Christ, God Almighty, came here among us. John later is, is going to say in 1 John 5.20, Listen to what he says. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus. He is the true God and eternal life. He is, Jesus, he is the true God and eternal life. Now, John, in verse 2, he is basically, again, telling us what he told us in verse 1. Do you notice that already? See how John talks? See how he's delivering his message to us? He's making sure we understand, and he's proving his point very well, isn't he? Look at verse 3 with me. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, that's important, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Stop right there. Now all of a sudden, John's sounding a little bit more like Paul, a little bit something we're more used to here. Here's some argumentation, some, some logical reasoning here. He's saying, here, so we've seen and we've heard it, we proclaim it to you, and here's why. So that you may have fellowship with us. But they're already believers, so does that mean that they might get into fellowship with them? What he means is so that you might remain in fellowship with us. 
as part of the church and that you're not deceived and that you're pulled away to leave and form another group that is not Christian at all, that is not true at all. He's saying, stay here among us. Don't be deceived and be pulled away into that which is false. So we find a group of churches who collectively find themselves in a seemingly perilous situation. What is that situation? Because many people, two things, many people are, number one, denying the truth, and then number two, they are leaving the church. That's what's happening all around them. John saw it happening, and he intervened. There are a bunch of people being deceived. They're leaving the church. They're denying the truth. Tell me, are there people now in this moment denying the truth and leaving the church? Are you concerned about that? Was John concerned? He's telling us something here about fellowship. And he's telling us the basis for our fellowship with one another. And that it's this. The basis for our fellowship rests upon the status of our fellowship with the Father and the Son. In other words, if you have fellowship with God himself by means of faith in the Son, then we have fellowship with one another. This is what this means. So what this means also then, if you don't have fellowship with the Father and the Son, you also don't have fellowship with other believers. Now this is hard for us, isn't it? Because we're having what today? A fellowship meal. That's fellowship. You know, that's what fellowship is. You know, we have fellowship nights. You know, we're fellowshipping with one another. You know, I mean, that's fellowship. What is fellowship truly? What's the Greek word here? Koinonia. Has to be, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't have asked you, would I? It's koinonia, which means what? Which means that there's a shared interest here in a reciprocal relationship. There is shared interest in a reciprocal relationship in covenant with one another. In other words, if we have true fellowship, we have shared interest. We have common interest. What is the common interest that we have? Primarily, it is our fellowship with the Father and the Son. That is our shared interest. And as you look around this room today, sometimes are you reminded, the basis of my fellowship with the people in this room that are so different than me is because we both have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And because of that, we have fellowship with one another. Do we have fellowship with one another because we are like each other? We look like each other. We are of the same financial status as one another. Even because we speak the same language, that shouldn't be why, right? What is it that is the basis of our fellowship? We all, oh, I got it. We all like the same style of music, right? And that's what draws us together. No, that, that can't, that's not it, is it? Oh, I got it. We all like small church, right? That's what it is. That, that's why we're here. What is it exactly? What is it that has drawn us all together in this room this morning? Someone invited you, possibly? You've been here for seven years, possibly, and this is just your church, your community, so you came. What, what, what drew you here this morning? Why do you fellowship with these people? 
if it is not primarily because you have fellowship with the Father and the Son and they do too, then your reasoning is wrong. We are not here as a community group, right? That's not why we're here, is it? This is just, oh, this is, this is my group, you know. This is my community. Now, it is true that we are our community. That's true. But why do we gather together? Because of shared interest in the Father and the Son. And so therefore, if our fellowship is based on shared interest, why is it that little things can and do interrupt our fellowship? Right? Like styles of music. Right? What? If our fellowship is not based on that, then why are we so concerned with that? Hmm, we might need to think about that. I want to give you some numbers here that may or may not shock you. They didn't shock me, I'll say, but I, I, I was disappointed, more disappointed than I thought I would be. Ready? According to several studies that I looked at, are you shocked to know that COVID has changed church? Are you shocked? Are you blown away by that information? No, that's not what I'm talking about. We already know that. COVID has changed church. Church attendance, according to recent studies, very recent studies, churches in the U.S. are only now at 36 to 60% of their attendance as to what they were before COVID. By average, that is the case. Most people who were going to church before COVID are not going anymore. Have you been tempted during COVID? Let's just be honest for a second, okay? I'm not feeling good today. You know, don't want to, I don't want to, you know. I might be contagious. I might be contagious. I was around somebody who was around somebody who had COVID. And so I'm just not going to come, you know. Now, some of you were legitimately sick. Understand I'm not talking to you. Have you been tempted to use excuses during COVID? This is just a way out. No one's going to ask where I was because, hey, it's COVID. If I'm out, they're going to assume that you know, has something to do with COVID. Not too many of you agreed with me, but not too many of you disagreed. So we'll just leave it at that. The largest group of people who has stopped coming to church during this time is what generation, do you think? Millennials. Millennials are 50% of them, 50% of millennials who went to church before COVID now no longer go to church. 35% of Generation X, that's a lot of you in the room, stopped attending church, 35%. 26 of baby boomers stopped attending. This is sad. At the same time, why were they going to church at all? Do you understand? Now, We are all tempted when we're worn out and we've been around enough people that just going to stay at home today. 
do you know that of the people who choose to stay at home and just watch online, I'm going to put that in quotations, are watching something online, but it's not their church. So that's a lot of you in this room. Right? Yeah? Oh, okay. I'll just remind you here because it's, it's pertinent. There are only four people in this entire world, if you are a member of this church, that are overseers of your souls. And they don't belong to any other church but FRC. So primarily, then, you need to hear what God has been pressing on our hearts for you. So please, if you are not able to come to church... At least, at bare minimum, listen to what we were teaching. And remember, just for accountability's sake, I have administrative access to YouTube and to the podcast, and I know how many people listen and watch. And I know that most of you in this room were not at Wednesday service, and you also didn't watch online. I know that to be true. Now, I don't say that as domineering over you, but what I am saying is, let's just draw attention to a reality. Let's just draw attention to a reality and not overlook it. We are in community together with shared interest, and we need to be reminded of that's what holds our community together. Do you think there were people who were part of those churches that when John's letter was read, some said, eh, I've had a busy enough day than to go gather with them and listen to some letter some guy wrote. Do you think there was somebody like that? I think we would be naive to think that there was nobody like that. It's a temptation in all generations, and I just want to say to you, please know that it's a temptation to be pulled away. And I want to plead with you to draw you back in. you realize that this is actually what John is saying to these churches. Don't leave the fellowship. Don't think that there's something better for you out in this world. No, there's not. I'm telling you, there's nothing better for you. There is nothing better for us. We need the fellowship of God's people. We have to have it. We must have it. We need it. Please. Be devoted to the fellowship. And I'm so thankful that you are here this morning because it shows so much. Look at verse four. He drives the point right home. We are writing these things. Why? So that if you have a KJV, it says your. It's textual variant. Okay? It's most likely our. All right? And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. All right? That our joy may be made complete. What is John's purpose in writing to these churches? So that he personally would have joy. That's kind of selfish. No, we misunderstand if we think that's what he's saying. Because what is John's joy? That the people might be walking in fellowship with one another and with God. That is his joy. Do you see it? 
His joy is that the people get it and that they're walking in fellowship with one another and with God himself. That is his joy. And do we blame him for that? Is that selfish? How selfish, John? No, I don't think so. He actually writes in 3 John, 3 John 1, 4, listen to what he says. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So we know that this is John's joy, that this is why he's writing, that the children of God might be walking in the truth and not being deceived and not being pulled away from the fellowship. He wants them to be with one another and to know with assurance that they have eternal life. Don't go somewhere else searching for it. You have life in Jesus' name. Don't look for it somewhere else. You have everything in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in it. So two things here as we wrap up our time together this morning. He is writing to say, number one, do not be deceived. You have received the word of life. If you have received the word of life, then you have fellowship with God. If you have received the true word of life, then you do have the fellowship with God. What's the name of our church? Why is Fellowship Renewed Church the name of our church? Uh, Because of that truth. Because of that truth. We were once a people who were lost in sin and only deserved the wrath of God, cut off from God. But now, by Jesus Christ and faith in his name, the fellowship that we lost has now been restored or renewed through Jesus Christ. We have renewed fellowship with God, and if we have renewed fellowship with God, guess what else we have? A renewed fellowship with one another. If we have fellowship with God, then we also have fellowship with one another. See how it works? If we start to think that our fellowship is based on anything else, this whole thing that we're doing here is going to go in very bad places. Let's not forget that the reason that we gather is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what draws us near to one another. Jimmy and I were doing our normal prayer time this morning, and uh, I said something, and just now in this moment realized what I said. But I was basically quoting what's over here uh, by Amy and Casey. So everybody look at Amy and Casey. But look at what's on the wall right there. This is, this is our mission as a church. It's a very simple uh, mission, and it has a lot of implications that aren't said, but they're implications. Okay, but what, what, are, what are we doing here? We are cultivating. That's continual work. A mature community. Isn't maturity in Christ what we aim for? Of what? Faith and fellowship. Right. In the word of God, by how? By the spirit of God. All for what purpose? For the glory of God. And if we are doing that, then we are also doing many, many other things by implication. Okay? This is why we gather. It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what John wanted his audience to know. It's what he wants us to know today. Don't forget why we gather. Don't forget what we're doing here. Don't be deceived by the world around you that says you don't need your church. You do. You do need your church. And it is far from perfect, by the way. 
You don't need it to feel better about yourself. You need it because we have shared interest with one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your hope is not in the people around you. Your hope is in the gospel that we all hang on together. So this helps us kind of step back for a second, right? And gain perspective on the fellowship that we have both with God and with one another. We have a fellowship meal today. Right after service. What is the purpose of that fellowship meal? Well, one is to eat, right? If you're, you like to eat, looking forward to it, I'm sure somebody brought dessert today. We're going to eat together. But what is the intention? Why are these meals in place at Fellowship Renewed Church? A fellowship meal. The fellowship meal is in place not so that our bellies would be full because you can all go somewhere else and eat, but so that your heart would be full of fellowship with one another. As you look around this room, I know for a fact there are people in this room you don't know. How can you have fellowship with someone that you don't know? I want to encourage you during our meal today. Uh, first of all, I want to encourage you to stay. Whether you brought something or not, there's more than enough food. You might have had plans to go out to eat, you know, LTAP, that's your thing. Wh- whatever you're about to do today, listen, I want to encourage you if you can. If you can make different plans today, I'm going to encourage you, please, stay with us and Learn about who we are as individuals saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And I promise you, there is encouragement to be found there. You're missing out if you don't get to know the people of God. You're missing out if you only know the same five people of God forever. The people of God are a blessing to you. They will be. And I know as the introvert of introverts... It's hard to get to know people to risk. I know, please, I know, I know. But let's all challenge ourselves. Is fellowship with believers important? Yes. So I just want to encourage you today to practice that fellowship, if at all possible. And stay with us, please. And have fellowship with the people of God. Why? Because we have shared interests. And I bet you, as you talk, you're going to realize how shared those interests are and all that God has done in your life hey, he's done that in my life too. And there's encouragement. So please, stay with us today. Come back next week as we move past John's prologue and get into the meat of what he has to say to us as a church, okay? Let's pray together.